0: Mount Hermon was known to be a sacred location in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh and his buddy Enkidu travel from uh, Uruk, which is about a four-month walk back in the day. So, I mean, this was not like one of the close mountains to ancient uh, Sumer. They they had to walk a long way, but they knew that according to the old Babylonian copy of this, this epic, that that was the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. So, um... Something sacred about that place for thousands of years, down to the time of Jesus and beyond. Um, Again, Bashan, that land just to the south of Mount Hermon, between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee, basically. Considered the literal entrance to the netherworld. And it is covered, it is covered with megalithic structures. Some of them huge, like Gilgal Rephaim. Others, the size of this room that uh, I'm sitting in. Uh, some smaller uh, like dolmens individual funerary monuments but all of them seem to be related to the cult of the dead the veneration of the uh, the ancestors the veneration of the Rephaim but but it kind of sets the groundwork it sets the uh, uh, the foundation for all of the stuff that's in the Bible and all of these condemnations of, of passing children through the fire to Molech and eating sacrifices offered to the dead all of that is based on the cult's practiced by the neighbors of the ancient Israelites and again the center of this cult related to the cult of the dead, the worship of the ancestral dead, which were actually demons, seems to be based around ancient Bashan, around ancient Bashan. Around ancient Bashan. All things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Kaiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lands.
1: There's this development of this knowledge that's being talked
0: about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the people's of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian,
1: they caught wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it.
0: But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality.
1: We are all on the hero's journey.
0: Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the sitch mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective.
1: Different perspective different perspective. What's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens podcast, the place where the conversations are always enlightening. I'm your host, Justin and today, we got an honored guest and dear friend of the show. And you may recognize his voice because he was kind enough to do our intro. Today, we got Derek Gilbert with us. Derek, how you doing? Justin,
0: it's good to be here. It is an honor, sir. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, no, the honor is all mine. And I love every time we talk, I can just sit back and just let you go, man. I just love it. <laughs> I, I just love it. But uh, today's subject, uh, we're going to talk about the, the land of Bashan and all the spiritual significance with it. And this is a man that's uh, led numerous trips out there and has tons of insight and information. And he's just, uh, I know he's just going to blow your mind today. So, uh, Derek, I guess with the the land of Bashan, I guess let's start off with the the etymology, Bashan.
0: Yeah, it's uh, related to a word from a language called Ugaritic, which is similar to Hebrew. It's... um... Just there, there's some consonants that shift between languages, and and we find that uh, you know we uh, I, I'm guilty of this. I, I've got to look very carefully at uh, these these languages and, and not get thrown. We were just talking before the program about uh, one that caught me by surprise at the archaeology conference that we uh, just came back from in uh, in Albuquerque, the international symposium on archaeology and the Bible, and, and finding out that staring us in the face for years has been documentation outside the Bible of the location of Sodom. Uh, I, you know, I've been hearing for years this. No, there's no proof that Sodom ever existed outside the Bible. Turns out that's not true. And it's because the vowels and the consonants aren't always transliterated the same way. Anyway, in Bashan, in the Hebrew, uh, the the word in Ugaritic, this similar language, would have been Bathan instead of uh, the sh. You get the th. Essentially, it means serpent. So, Bashan literally means the place of the serpent. Now, this is really interesting because when you start looking at, first of all, the land, but also other connections to um, religious or mythological, if you prefer, uh, serpents in the ancient world, you find that that's a name that was well known for a very long time before Jesus walked the earth. In the 26th century BC, so we're talking, you know, 26, 2500 BC, somewhere thereabouts, there, there's a small inscription that was found in what is now Iraq, this, the middle part of Iraq, that depicts a, the warrior god Ninurta. He was a, like an agricultural god, but also a warrior, who was battling a seven headed chaos dragon that was named Bashmu. Well, Bashmu is just the Akkadian form of Bashan, or Bathan. So now you've got this connection between what scholars call the Chaos Kampf or the Chaos Struggle, which was a common story in the ancient world where a warrior god like Ninurta or Enlil or Marduk or even further back the, the sky god Anu would have to subdue a chaos dragon or a chaos monster in order to bring the world into being suitable for humans. They had to create order out of chaos, in other words. Uh, The names changed in uh, the ancient Sumerian myth. It was Tiamat, the chaos monster. In Akkadian, it was uh, uh, Temtum. In the Ugaritic language, their chaos dragon was called Yam, which is still in Hebrew to this day. That's the word for sea, by the way, which opens up some very interesting in understandings and interpretations of the Old Testament. In word plays. <laughs> uh, e- exactly, because uh, it's been known before, for years by scholars that in the Old Testament, the, the ocean, the sea, is a representation of primordial chaos. Well, it's because of this connection to this primordial chaos dragon, uh, who Isaiah refers to and Job refers to as Leviathan. The the Bible story is very simple in Genesis one verse two when God's spirit is hovering over the deep, that is the tohom, which is the Hebrew form of the Akkadian word temtum, or Tiamat. In other words, God is hovering over the chaos and essentially subduing it, saying, you know, down, like <laughs> you're you're <laughs> like you're disciplining a, a bad dog. Um, and we read in Isaiah and in, in Psalm uh, Psalm seventy four that God essentially subdued Leviathan, uh, crushed the heads of Leviathan, uh, gave his carcass for food to uh, you know the beasts in the wilderness. Uh, but ultimately, in Isaiah 27, verse 1, on that day, the day of the Lord, which is the day of Armageddon, essentially, that prophesied future day when God says, okay, I've had enough, I'm coming down, then chaos will ultimately be destroyed. Right now it's subdued, but not yet destroyed. Well, again, this story was told and retold by other cultures in the ancient Near East. The Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the the Hittites and Hurrians, the, the Canaanites, the Greeks had a, a story uh, with Zeus having to defeat a multi-headed serpentine chaos monster called Typhon. Mm-hmm. The Greeks, or uh, rather the, uh, the Egyptians, they had their struggle with Apophis, the, the chaos monster. So this was a common story. It's just that the Bible records the actual version with Yahweh, the warrior, subduing chaos, Leviathan. But the name, the Akkadian form of this entity, Bashmu, is remembered in the name of the kingdom of Og of Bashan. Why would that be named for the chaos serpent? Well, maybe it was just a generic form of the name, of a meaning serpent, don't know. Can't go back and ask any ancient Akkadians because they're gone now. But uh, I think it's interesting that just within the last 10 years, thanks to our our brother Doug Van Dorn, in his book Giants, Sons of the Gods, back in 2013, was the first one to spot this this feature on the landscape, on the Golan Heights, which is right in the middle of ancient Bashan, that looks for all the world like a three-quarter of a mile long, 200-foot wide serpent. It is an S-shaped, scholars call it a basalt flow, meaning it's, cooled lava and there are extinct volcanoes on the Golan Heights which is mainly a, a, uh, a, a raised area of like thin layer of soil on top of volcanic rock um, so all right maybe this wasn't uh, built like the serpent mound in Ohio by piling up a bunch of dirt uh, but it was clear that almost 6,000 years ago it was considered sacred Because when you go to the site, you see that it is covered. This this serpent-shaped ridge, three-quarters of a mile long, is covered with megalithic funerary monuments. They're not tombs because they've not found any bodies buried in these things, but they are dolmens covered with cairns. A dolmen is usually like a a table-like structure with two vertical slabs of stone with one across the top. There are about 140 of these on the back of this structure which is just a quarter of a mile north of Gilgal Rephaim, which is that uh, massive megalithic structure uh, made of like five concentric rings of stone around a central tumulus, which is sort of an artificial cave, an artificial netherworld. Mm-hmm. So you've got this structure or this complex of religious sites that according to the most recent excavations done by uh, Dr. Mike Freakman, who's been a guest on my podcast and will be again soon, Um probably dates to about 3,700 BC, Gilgal Rephaim, that is. Um, But he's found evidence that there was an older structure that appears to have been dismantled to build Gilgal Rephaim. So this could go back prior to 4,000 BC. Now, uh, this is 30 miles south of Mount Hermon, and your viewers may be aware that Mount Hermon in the ancient world was essentially the Canaanite Mount Olympus. That's the easiest way to describe it. It was where the gods met. The creator god of the Canaanites, El, was, uh, that was his abode, where he would hold court with his, uh, his consort, Asherah, and their 70 sons. And that number 70 doesn't literally mean 70. It means all the gods of the nations. Uh, the number 70 in the ancient Near East meant it was a symbol that represented all of them, the complete set. Mm. So all of the gods met on this 9,000-foot mountain at the north end of Israel, just above the Golan Heights, ancient Bashan, the place of the serpent, which in turn was believed to be the literal entrance to the netherworld. So Og of Bashan was ruling over the gate to hell, basically. Mm-hmm. And at the north end of his kingdom was this mountain, the tallest mountain anywhere near Israel, that was believed to be the mountain where the gods met, except for Baal. Baal's palace was located on a mountain in uh, northwestern Syria. But uh, essentially, El, who was like the, 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 old, the old man of the gods, the one who created them, the father of all the gods, Mount Hermon is where, where he met. So going back throughout recorded history, uh, as far back as we got writing, I mean, we even know that from the time of Abraham, what scholars call the old Babylonian period, say 1900, 1800 BC, uh, that Mount Hermon was known to be a sacred location in the epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh and his buddy Enkidu travel from uh, Uruk, which is about a four-month walk back in the day. So, I mean, this was not like one of the close mountains to ancient uh, Sumer. They they had to walk a long way, but they knew that according to the old Babylonian copy of this this epic, that that was the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. So, um, something sacred about that place for thousands of years, down to the time of Jesus and beyond, Um, again, Bashan, that land just to the south of Mount Hermon, between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee, basically, considered the literal entrance to the netherworld. And it is covered, it is covered with megalithic structures, some of them huge, like Gilgal Rephaim, others the size of this room that uh, I'm sitting in, uh, some smaller, uh, like dolmens, individual funerary monuments. But all of them seem to be related to the cult, of the dead the veneration of the uh, the ancestors the veneration of the Rephaim and this was known not just from biblical texts but from uh, the the Canaanites who lived around the ancient Israelites uh, this was known as a a place of special significance uh, relating to the the cult of the netherworld so when we go there even though uh, there are a few references in the Bible to Bashan it's it's th- th- this conflict isn't explicit in the bible but but it kind of sets the groundwork it sets the uh uh, the foundation for all of the stuff that's in the bible and all of these condemnations of uh, of passing children through the fire to Molech and eating sacrifices offered to the dead all of that is based on the cults practiced by the neighbors of the ancient israelites and again the center of this cult related to the cult of the dead the worship of the ancestral dead which were actually demons Seems to be based around ancient Bashan. But I was wanting to hit on this
1: uh, verse here in Psalm 68 and verse 15 through 23. Mm -hmm. You know, it says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You are ascended on high, leading the host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So it references back to the whole divine or the imitation of the divine council.
0: Right. The the mountain of Bashan is um, is a reference to Mount Hermon. And even though it's referred to, it's translated in the, uh, the the version you read, the ESV, as O Mountain of God, Mountain of Bashan. Uh, the late Dr. Michael Heiser pointed out that the Hebrew there, O Har, uh, har Elohim, Har Bashan. Um, since we know that the Mountain of God is actually the Temple Mount, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, not Mount Hermon, the proper translation of verse 15 there is, O mountain of gods, plural, small g, gods, plural, mountain of Bashan. Mm. The psalmist is comparing Mount Hermon, which is looking with envy at Mount Zion, which is only about 2,000 feet, by the way. So Mount Hermon is about four times higher than Mount Zion, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, Temple Mount, by the way, is not even the highest hill in Jerusalem, which is interesting. God wants his people to approach him, not like Mount Hermon, where Unless you go after the snow is completely melted for the winter, which doesn't happen until like August or September, you take your life in your hands trying to climb to the summit where there was a temple. In fact, that temple is uh, still to this day, the highest man-made place of worship on earth, which is really curious because Mount Hermon is not even one of the 100 tallest mountains on earth. And yet none of those mountains taller than Hermon has a man-made temple on it at an elevation above 9,200 feet, the, the summit of Hermann. Well, anyway- so The um, United
1: Nations have set up a,
0: a, yeah. a building there. In, in fact, I was just editing that portion of the video that we're working on, Sharon and me, called uh, the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Uh, you, so I was you know, showing some photos of what they call uh, the, the Hermann Hotel, where uh, the United Nations Disengagement Observer, Observer Force, or UNDOF, has its uh, soldiers-based. And, and in the wintertime, yeah, it's, that's a pretty nasty place to have to... Uh, it, it's, it's like, you know, Ice Station Zebra or whatever. It's, it's like a, a, a science outpost in the Antarctic. You, d- you don't want to be one of the soldiers who gets stuck with sentry duty um, at, on Mount Hermon in the middle of winter. Anyway, this, I think, Psalm 68 is really interesting because I think that not only does it illustrate what might be a war in the, in the heavenly realm, you know the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, and then He's He's ascending on high, leading a host of captives away. It's like He went to the mountain, you know, the Canaanite Olympus, and is taking captives away. That that verse seventeen, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. The uh, NET Bible renders it a little bit uh, better, I think. Um, the Lord comes from Sinai in holy splendor. They say it's it's a difficult. Hebrew to translate, but that makes more sense, especially when you look at the history of the uh, the Hebrews and the fact that they came from the south, from uh, what, it, what was Edom and Moab, uh, probably the region around Petra. I know that there are people who say that Sinai was in uh, uh, Saudi what is Saudi Arabia today. We think it was further north, somewhere around Petra, but we, we'll defend that in the future. It needs more research. The point is that God, it's agreed, led his people from the South, from Sinai, wherever it was, to the North, and appears to have done battle with the spirits that uh, used Mount Hermon as as their base. But I think it's also prophetic, because you go down to... Um, That's what I was about to say, because, you know, you get the whole
1: transfiguration, and he goes right, you know, right. from there, and
0: ultimately goes to the cross and leads a host of captives free. Sharon has even speculated that this whole... Um, section there in verse 18 ascending on high leading a coast of host of captives in his train. what did that take place at the Transfiguration? could be. it could be. Um, it could also be that that was a representation of the event in Psalm 82 where God is in the midst of the gods in the divine council and says uh, because you have judged unjustly, though you are gods, all of you sons of the most high, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So, uh, again, we're speculating because it's not explicit in scripture, but in verse 22 of Psalm 68, the Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan. I will bring back from the depths of the sea, or I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. And, uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, Well, again, you're dealing with a a difficult phrase to translate. A scholar by the name of Nicholas Wyatt, whose work we've cited in our books a number of times, offers what he thinks is a better translation. From Bashan, I shall bring back, I shall bring back from the depths, sea. But remembering that Yam in Hebrew is also the name of the chaos dragon who was known to the Akkadians as Bashmu or Bashan. In other words, from Bashan, the place of the serpent, I shall bring back. I shall bring back from the depths or from the abyss, uh, the chaos dragon, Yam, Leviathan, Tiamat. So I think we may be looking at something prophetic here in in Psalm sixty eight that's been overlooked, and this is one of the reasons that we have been so excited to get back to Israel. Um, after twenty nineteen, we had hoped to go in twenty twenty. We had rescheduled our tour which finally uh, went in March of this year, we had to reschedule four times because of COVID mm-hmm. uh, finally got there. We were able to go back and thanks to Aaron Lipkin, Lipkin tours, we were able to go a few days early and go to uh, Bashan, go to Gilgal Rephaim, spent the day with, uh, with Dr. Mike Freakman, who's done the most recent excavations there at Gilgal Refahim and at that serpent shaped Ridge just a quarter of a mile north from it. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, when you're looking down from, uh, looking down, say, at the images on Google Earth, and you find a serpent-shaped geological feature covered with megalithic tombs that you can see from space, maybe you've discovered the reason, and again, credit to Doug Van Dorn, but maybe you've discovered the reason (laughs) that Bashan was called Bashan and why that place was sick. Because those 140 tombs, or I should say, funerary monuments on the back of that serpent ridge, are all there. They're not down on the ground. You know, this thing is elevated like 20 to 25 feet above the ground around it. Between there and Gilgal Rephaim, there are very few of these dolmens or, or funerary monuments. They're all clustered on the back of that serpent shaped ridge. So, Going back 6,000 years, probably, and maybe even further, within sight of Mount Hermon, at least on a day when it, you don't get a lot of dust coming out of the Arabian Desert. But on a lot of days, if it's clear, you can see Mount Hermon the, on the northern horizon. And um, right there in the middle of Og's Old Kingdom is this site related to the cult of the dead. And a quarter of a mile away is this long, I mean, a serpent-shaped feature on the landscape that makes the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio look like an, like an earthworm. What's happening? What's up? Hold
1: out your glass because we're about to fill it up. You know, I always said that I would never bow to any corporate sponsor. But hey, rest assured, this ain't corporate. Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company has been a sponsor of my show, The Dig Bible Podcast. They've come on board with the Prometheus Lens. I'm here to tell you guys, if you like good, bold, smooth finished coffee, check these guys out. I'm a personal customer, been, been that way for a, quite some time now. Uh, the breakfast blend, real good for the morning and then you got for your hardcore guys that like their coffee with a little bit of legs, they have the flight line Joe. I'm telling you, ladies don't drink this because it's going to put hair on your chest. <laughs> but no guys, if you want to help sponsor the show, help keep the lights on, go on over to a uh, KLRJoes.com, check out their stuff and see uh, what we you like. You've say several to choose from. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in your book Veneration, you touched on uh, the Stella of-, of Mount Hermon and that you had uh, found, I think, some stone tablets or clay tablets. Where it described uh, a ritual that they would do on this mountain, where they would uh, call forth the travelers, and they would have to wait three days. Uh, could you uh, run through that? Okay, I think yeah. that's, that's pretty. Well, I think there are a, couple, a
0: couple of a couple of things here, but um, that we need that are uh, we're, we're separate, but I think they they tie together. Um, in 1869, a fellow named Charles Warren who was um, an engineer with the British military, was sent by the Palestine Exploration Fund to do a survey of um, the Holy Land. He's, he's the fellow who found the, the Moabite stone, the, the Mesha Stele that uh, now scholars are coming to agree does make mention of the House of David on it. So we've got a couple of uh, inscriptions outside the Bible that make reference to uh, to David. Anyway, in September of 1869, he climbed to the summit of Mount He found the temple up there. Uh, and, you know, the locals knew that it was there. They call it Kasar Antar. Um, a Presbyterian minister had been there like 10 years earlier. But what Warren found that people had missed for 2,000 years inside the temple was a, uh, a, an inscription, a slab of limestone that weighed about 6,000 pounds that was inscribed in ancient Greek, And said something like, um, by order of the most high and holy God, those who swore an oath proceed from here. And uh, that is a reference, scholars agree, to the watchers and a reference to First Enoch, um, where we read that 200 watchers led by a guy, a, a chief. Uh, And watchers, a class of angel, by the way, they're mentioned briefly in Daniel chapter four, where watchers come down and tell King Nebuchadnezzar that because he's been a jerk, they're going to punish him by driving him crazy for seven years. And uh, so not all of the watchers are evil. Some of them are still faithful and loyal to God, apparently. Anyway, 200 of them rebelled, led by Shemiaza. Azazel was among them. Shemiaza apparently was the one responsible for getting them to commingle their seed with the seed of women producing these hybrid giants. Azazel is the one who uh, encouraged the teaching of forbidden knowledge like sorcery and metalworking for the purpose of making weapons and stuff like that. Um, This um, inscription that was probably, uh, it could be anywhere from third century BC to third century AD. Scholars really don't know how to date it, but somewhere in the classical era or the early Christian era. Um, it, it's clearly a reference to that event, and um, Warren was able to bring it down the mountain. He had to cut it down. It's like eighteen inches wide, about four feet high, and it was about uh, twelve inches thick. And he cut it down to about four inches thick, um, and, which meant that it was you know two thousand pounds instead of six thousand. I mean, you really got to want to bring this up to the temple to, to lug a six thousand pound piece of rock up nine thousand foot of mountain. Yeah. Anyway, he got it down. It was broken but it's now at the British Museum, not on display, interestingly enough. But um, Doug Hamp, in his book, Corrupting the Image, Volume 2, actually got some new information uh, from the translation of that stone that scholars have missed for the last 100 years, 120 years. It wasn't unboxed, even though Warren got it back to London in 1870. It wasn't unboxed until 1903. Wow. And uh, Yeah. It somehow got misplaced. Now, in Sharon's series of novels called The Red Wing Saga, it's opened at the beginning of book two in 1879 or somewhere around there. Um, And uh, a bad thing happens to the guy who's, you know, the poor guy who opened the box. But, you know, so a nice plot device. This is how we learned about this stone, by the way. Anyway, Doug Hamp got some additional information out of it and found that scholars had been kind of skipping over a couple of words that they couldn't translate one was Bo, B-O, and the other is Batou, B-A-T-I-O-U. And Doug brilliantly found said, okay, Bo is a Greek prefix. Again, this is written in Greek, a Greek prefix that means bovid, like bull-like. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, El, the creator god of the Canaanites, his main nickname or epithet was Bull El. So if that's his mountain where he holds court, bol L, yeah, that would be the place where he would meet, okay? And Batu, Uh Doug speculated, and he talked to a couple of other scholars about this, uh, um, one in particular whose work we really appreciate, Amar Anus, an Estonian scholar, has done some great work on the Nephilim, uh, and he agreed that Doug probably had it right. Batiu is a Hellenized or Grecianized form of a Sumerian logogram that is like a, a cuneiform... Um, uh, uh writing, you know, using the little wedge-shaped reeds in clay, uh, the, the symbol in, in Sumerian, Bad or Bat that referred to the chief god of the Sumerians, Enlil, and the chief god of the Amorites, uh, Dagon. Enlil, Dagon, and El were all the same entity just by different names. So essentially, according to Doug, the uh, new translation or the correct translation should be by order of the Most High. And holy God, bull el those who swore an oath proceed from here. Well, in my book, The Second Coming of Saturn, I argued that El, or Enlil, or Dagon, uh, Saturn, Kronos, many other names, was Shemiyaza, the leader of this rebellion on Mount Hermon. So I cited Doug's book in my book because I, I think this is just more evidence that makes the case that we're dealing with the same entity here. And again, it points to the sacred nature to the pagans of Mount Hermon, it is the the Canaanite Mount Olympus. Now, in Ugarit, which was that uh, uh, Semitic kingdom that I mentioned earlier, it's an Amorite kingdom based out of uh, Northern Syria on the Mediterranean coast, very close to the modern border between Syria and Turkey. Um, This kingdom that was um, kind of a powerful city-state on the Mediterranean coast for about 500 years, it was destroyed around 1200 BC, around a time of what scholars call the uh, the, the Bronze Age Collapse. Uh, a lot of cultures in the eastern Mediterranean region were destroyed at that time. The Hittite Empire collapsed. A number of smaller kingdoms, including Ugarit, were destroyed. The Sea Peoples were blamed for this. They almost overran Egypt. The Egyptians managed to drive them back. Now, was that anyway, the nations? Um the Phoenicians are what came out of this. The uh, the people of Ugarit were essentially Amorite, and their descendants, after we passed through a period of history, were eventually called the Phoenicians. So the Phoenicians were essentially just the descendants of the Amorites, or the Canaanites. Hmm. Canaanite, Amorite, same term, it's just Canaanite sort of geographically designates the Amorites who lived in uh, the western part of Mesopotamia, Towards the Mediterranean Sea, Babylonian. They were Amorite. They just lived in eastern part of Mesopotamia. It's like you know, I'm a Chicagoite because I was born there, but actually, I'm you know German, English, Welsh, Swedish. So uh, that that's what you're dealing with. Babylonian, Canaanite, not really, uh, not really uh, ethnicities. They're just uh, geographic designators. They were all Amorites, hmm. and the Phoenicians emerged from the uh the, the the chaos in the uh around the time of the judges in the bible actually. all had ties to uh, giant clans um or those who worshiped what they believed were the giants of old yes 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 so anyway um you uh was discovered was rediscovered about 100 years ago it's it's a site in syria called ras shamra and the texts were, were discovered by accident. And it's really helped us to understand the Old Testament better because the, the language is similar to Hebrew. Um, there are a lot of words that were not well understood from Hebrew, but when you can add the context from uh, Ugaritic and, and some other, you know, Semitic languages like Akkadian and Eblaite and Moabite, now uh, you can you can get a better idea. You can sort of triangulate on what the words mean by looking at the, the context. And there are several texts in Uh, Eucharitic, that are called the Rephaim text, because they mention this group of um, underworld entities that are called Rapayuma in Eucharitic, but it's Rephaim in Hebrew. Uh, They appear to be entities who are summoned to a banquet or a ritual meal at the threshing floor or the tabernacle tabernacle of El, which can only be the summit of Mount Hermon. Um, and again, this is not me saying this. This is the scholars who devoted their you know, academic careers to studying this stuff. Um, I'm not a scholar. I just read their work and try to fit the pieces together. I was so, about to say, watch you act
1: like you are not.
0: I'm sorry. I had to cut in here.
1: But Derek, I'm telling you, such a humble guy. If anybody would be considered an expert, it's this guy. I've never seen anybody with a... A memory recall like this man's got he's like a, a walking breathing and, and talking dictionary just how he can just recall all the scripture and and tie all these things together that's one thing I, I love about Derek he's just so down to earth and such a humble guy but I had to throw that in there I mean if any of you guys listen to this show and listen to his work you know you're familiar with Derek and he's just a, a brilliant man and but I just love how humble that he is. You know, I, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not an expert. Well, if you're not, buddy, we're, we're all doomed. <laughs> we're all doomed. But uh, I just had to throw that in there. I'll get
0: back to the episode. <laughs> so these these Repayuma are are summoned in one of these texts. The The text literally says they mount their chariots. They travel first one day and then another, and they arrive at the threshing floor of El at dawn of the third day. Like, wow. I mean, if you're a Christian, you got to hear that and understand the significance. This is 1,200 years before the birth of Jesus. That's how old these texts were at the time Jesus walked the earth. Ugarit was destroyed around 1,200 B.C., maybe a little after. So you're talking 12 centuries before Jesus. There was a group of people believed to be the spirits of the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. In other words, the the Nephilim, although yeah. the Eucharitic people didn't call them that, but but that's who we're dealing with here, were summoned to a ritual meal in what's like a necromantic ritual. In other words, summoning, them, summoning the dead from the netherworld to attend this meal held in their honor by the king of the gods, El, and they arrive at dawn of the third day at, on the summit of Mount Hermon.
1: Yeah.
0: And so Jesus, when he's walking the earth, makes a point of traveling from his home base, the base of his ministry on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, at Capernaum, walking 30 miles. Uh, You know, it's not like get in the car, drive half an hour, 45 minutes, and we're there. It's like you got to walk 30 miles with your guys to a pagan cult site at the base of Mount Hermon called Caesarea Philippi. Where there was a a temple to Jupiter, there's a temple to the emperor, there was uh, the the grotto of Pan, a cave that was sacred to the goat demon Pan, the goat god, and here you're bringing a bunch of nice Jewish boys there for this, what? I mean, they've got to be good, uh, uh, look, Rabbi, why are we here? What's the point of this? And this is where he asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they give him some answers, and then he says, okay, but who do you say I am? And that's when Peter gives that answer, that very famous answer, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus confirms this by saying, blessed are you, Simon bar for this was not revealed to you by man, by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And over Jesus is saying, Peter has received divine revelation and he's saying it at the foot of the mountain that was the Canaanite Olympus, the mountain sacred to all the Canaanite gods. And then according to Matthew, Six days later he takes his fellows up a very high mountain, and the only very high mountain in the vicinity is Mount Hermon. he climbs this mountain and that's where he's transfigured. this is not by accident this is not by coincidence. Jesus was declaring his divinity at the base of Mount Hermon and by the way that cave that cave the grotto of Pan according to the first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus was believed to be the entrance to the netherworld he, he wrote that they had um, no one had ever been able to lower a plumb line long enough into that cave to hit bottom. It, they thought it was a bottom. It's literally the entrance to the netherworld. You throw a, throw a sacrifice in there. If it sinks, the gods have accepted it. If it doesn't sink, well, then you're out of luck. They didn't like it. Jesus is standing right there when he says, um, on this rock, this 9,200-foot mountain, the Canaanite Olympus, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, which is this really big cave right over here, will not prevail against it. I'll tell you, Justin, when we've had the opportunity three times now to go through those verses right in front of that cave and people see what Jesus and the disciples saw when he was saying that, you can hear a hundred people at a time all go, (gasps) because it suddenly brings it home. The geography is important. Where Jesus did what he did is important not just what what he did obviously was critical but where he did it was also very important and when you see it with your own eyes when you're standing at the base of this mountain and looking up and looking over at this massive cave that used to be the source of the jordan river man it 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 brings the bible alive for you just watching it on
1: video i've watched that video of you talking in front of that mountain And it it gives me goosebumps just watching. I can only imagine being there in person. And it does, like you said, it ties so many things together. And I like how Mike said, you know, Mike Heiser, that it was, you know, the beginning of the reversal of the Tower of Babel. He You know, he sends out his 70 against L70. And then you talked about how, uh, uh, on that stone, they found the, that word translated is basically bovine, the bull. Mm -hmm. And then you get in the Psalms, the prophetic uh, texts about the cross. And what does it say? It says, you know, the, the many bulls of Bashan surround me
0: in the 22nd Psalm.
1: Yeah. And you, you get that, that, that veil is pulled back. So we can see that spiritual warfare going around and, so he went there. He transfigured, claimed his divinity, and said, "I am going to put my seventy against your seventy. I am taking back my nations, and there is nothing you can do about it." So they, you know, you know, they all formed together. We got to kill him. We got to kill him. And they nail him to the cross, and all of them are gathered around, you know, and just laughing, thinking they have won. All the bulls of Bashan are celebrating, and little did they know they sealed their own fate. It was it was the the parable of the the good tenant, you
0: know. Yeah, it is uh, eye-opening when you realize that that's what was going on, that there was no um, incidental or coincidental stuff. Uh, It it was all very deliberate. I mean, when you look at the sequence of events that led up to that, they had just returned from their their side trip over to the region of uh, Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia. So they were in the Lebanese coast. And um, when they came back, and they returned to Capernaum. The 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 road that led from Tyre to uh, the region of Caesarea Philippi and Dan um, would have been the route that they took, because they would have had to cross over um, the, uh, the the Lebanon Mountains uh, across the uh, near Dan, which is at the bottom of the Deca Valley, and then turn south through the the Hula Valley. Um, which is the valley that the Jordan River runs through between Dan and uh, Mount Hermon, basically, and uh, the Sea of Galilee. Um, and again, it's, it's a 30-mile walk from you know, Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum, where Jesus bases ministry. They, he could have said, while they were in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi, oh, by the way, fellas, as long as we're here, let's just, you know. No, he made a special trip back to make that point and um our friend Dr. Jed Burton has said he thinks that he did it at a specific time of year to coincide with a pagan festival, the festival of uh Paternalia, which was a Roman festival that dealt with the worship of the ancestral dead. Wow, who again were not the spirits of the ancestors; they were the demonic spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood. One of the things that uh, we we've researched quite a bit the uh origin of demons, and it was the understanding of the early church, it was pretty much unanimous, the consensus in the early church until about the time of Augustine. So for the first four centuries after the the resurrection, everybody knew that demons were the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. What blew my mind was reading that when you go back six centuries before the birth of Jesus, the Greek poet Hesiod, who um, has written a lot of what we uh, he, he is the reason we know a lot of what we know about Greek mythology or what we call mythology. It was actually their religion. But he wrote that uh, the, the men of the Golden Age, when Kronos ruled in heaven, okay, and the term in, the term in Greek was moropes anthropoi, uh, when, when they died, their spirits became daemons. And they wandered the earth assisting humans because they're kindly and helpful and you know, yeah Okay, as long as you sacrifice to them and all that the, but the bottom line is the greeks understood That the spirits they called daemons, which is where we get the word demon Were the spirits of these men these demigods who lived during the golden age the pre-flood era when chronos ruled in heaven and chronos and the titans were banished in the fake news version, banished by Zeus and the Olympians, but they were banished to Tartarus. In 2 Peter 2, verse 4, we read that the angels who sinned, and in the context of 2 Peter 2, it's a sexual sin, which can only point to the sons of God in Genesis 6. The angels who sinned had been thrust down to Tartarus by God. 2 Peter 2, verse 4, the word in English is usually hell, but in Greek it's tartarao, Mm -hmm. or tartarosis, which means... Thrust down to Tartarus. Only place in the Bible that word is used. So you have to, as as Mike Kaiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. I would argue that the Titans of Greek mythology were the watchers of the book of First Enoch, the sons of God from Genesis six.
1: And just like the and Anunnaki. Uh, uh, I, 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 un- swear, I think that's the
0: you know the Mesopotamian version of the same story. The Anunnaki or the Apkalu, yes. again, the story is kind of fuzzy, but be- again, the pagan version is the fake news version. But yes, by the time of Abraham, the Anunnaki, who had been formerly the great gods of Sumer, had been demoted to the netherworld. They were judges of the netherworld, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because by the time of Abraham, that's when you've got uh, Gilgamesh trying to fight the, uh, the, the monster called Humbaba, Humbaba at the cedar forest of Lebanon, and then once he defeats Humbaba... He, then he you know penetrates into Hermon and uh, the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. So even again in the time of Abraham and four months walk away in, in Babylonia, they understood that there was something really creepy and underworldly about uh, about uh, that, that mountain over there in the north of Canaan, Mount uh, Hermon. Well Sharon and I, uh, all of our stuff is, is at uh, Gilberthouse.org gilberthouse.org we uh, do a weekly program called Unraveling Revelation where we look at end times Bible prophecy. Our weekly Bible study is really sort of the heart of what we do that's just an audio podcast but um, we also do a, a, a podcast that started at all PID Radio, Peering into Darkness where we kind of look at the, uh, the world around us and uh, try to analyze it um, we've, got an, we've got an app where all of the content comes right into the app so you don't have to remember what YouTube channel to look at or anything like that uh, and uh, there's a link to that uh, app in the uh, the menu bar at GilbertHouse.org. We encourage people to get that because while we're at YouTube, since they don't charge us to use that uh, Mars Hill, we don't want to guarantee that we'll be there forever. At some point, we'll probably say something It gets us kicked off. So uh, we encourage people to get our app and uh, you make it uh, take advantage of that.
1: there you have it, the one and only Derek Gilbert. This is part one of a part two series of The Land of the Serpent. If you are an all-access pass holder, then you are going to have access to part two. And if you are not an all-access pass holder, I encourage you to to head over to PrometheusLensPodcast.com and sign up. For 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks for the year Gets you 48 hour early access to all episodes Members only episodes Private community Where we'll be hosting private Q&As with these authors and these speakers And I'm also working on documentaries throughout the year So come join the band of brothers and sisters on this hero's journey And until next time torches high.